peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. So war is what the world got after the formation of the Federal Reserve there in America just before Christmas in 1913. And within six months, we saw the outworking of this plan to bring in the New World Order with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand there in Sarajevo in June of 1914, which was the event which started off World War I. And this was all according to a plan that was laid out in the previous century by a man called Albert Pike with the help of three other leading Freemasons. Albert Pike was born in 1809 in Boston, studied at Harvard, then later served as Brigadier General in the Confederate Army. After the Civil War, he was found guilty of treason and jailed. He was pardoned by fellow Freemason President Andrew Johnson in 1866, with whom he met at the White House the very next day. The only monument to a Confederate general in Washington, D.C. was erected in Pike's honour. Pike was one of the founding fathers and head of the ancient accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, being the Grand Commander of North American Freemasonry from 1859 to 1891. In 1869, he was the top leader of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and in 1871 wrote the Masonic Handbook, The Morals and Dogma, of the ancient accepted rite of Freemasonry. And so Albert Pike's greatest claim to fame would be that as a 33rd degree leading Freemason in America there in Charlottesville, South Carolina, he set up the Palladian Rite with the help of a Jesuit by the name of John Peter de Smet. And Albert Pike liaised in Rome and Italy where Mussolini came out of from a lodge there in Italy at the time of the Second World War. And likewise, Otto von Bismarck, the leader of the Prussian parliament and also the man who was most responsible for setting up the Second Reich in Germany, the First Reich being the Holy Roman Empire and the Third Reich being Adolf Hitler, who came up out of that lodge in Germany. And also Lord Henry Palmerston, who was a knight of the Order of the Garter and the leading Freemason in England at the time, was also part of this Palladian Rite. 
And so he was the Prime Minister of England at the time of the Opium Wars in China and also was Queen Victoria's Foreign Secretary. And so these are the men that set up this Palladian Rite that took over all the Western lodges from that time on. And you know, for example, that Albert Pike wrote a letter to Giuseppe Mazzini in August of 1871, and this is what he said about three world wars. The First World War must be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia and of making that country a fortress of atheistic communism. The divergences caused by the agent tour, that is the agents of the Illuminati between the British and Germanic empires would be used to foment this war. At the end of the war, communism would be built and used in order to destroy the other governments and in order to weaken the religions. And so here we see the outworking of the First World War was in fact the overtaking of the Tsar of Russia and he was deposed and executed and communism was established and Russia became a fortress of atheistic communism. And this was financed by the bankers there in Wall Street. For example, we know that Jacob Schiff boasted on his deathbed that he gave $20 million in gold to the Russian Revolution. And so the Jews from Wall Street were financing the Jews in Russia who were the Red Army fighting the White Army, the native white people. And so the Federal Reserve created a Great Depression in the 1930s, which was the very opposite to the thing that it was supposed to do, which was to create economic stability. And so let's turn our attention now back to the plan of the international bankers, which is described in this letter between Howard Pike and Giuseppe Mazzini. The Second World War must be formatted by taking advantage of the differences between the fascists and the political Zionists. This war must be brought about so that Nazism is destroyed and so that political Zionism be strong enough to institute a sovereign state of Israel and Palestine. And of course, in 1948, Israel declared independence after they had bombed the King David Hotel. During the Second World War, international communism must be strong enough in order to balance Christendom, which would then be restrained and held in check until the time that we would need it for the final social cataclysm. And after the Second World War, of course, communism was made strong enough, and also we know the weaker governments were being taken over. And in 1945, at the Potsdam Conference between Truman, Churchill and Stalin, a large portion of Europe was simply handed over to Russia. And on the other hand, other side of the world, the aftermath of the war with Japan helped to sweep the tide of communism into China. And so all the mechanisms are in place today for World War III. And so let's return now to the letter written by Albert Pike to Giuseppe Mazzini and have a look to see what he had to say about World War III. The Third World War must be formatted by taking advantage of the differences caused by the agent tour of the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. The war must be conducted in such a way that Islam and political Zionism mutually destroy each other. Meanwhile, the other nations, once more divided on this issue, will be constrained to fight to the point of complete physical, moral, spiritual and economic exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists, and we shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm 
which in all its horror will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism that is the origin of savagery and of the most bloody turmoil. Then everywhere the citizens obliged to defend themselves against a world minority of revolutionaries will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and the multitude, disillusioned with Christianity, whose deistic spirits will from that moment on be without compass or direction, anxious for an ideal, but without knowing where to render its adoration, will receive the true light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer, brought finally out into the public view. This manifestation will result from the general reactionary movement which will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism, both conquered and exterminated at the same time. And so today, for example, we know that the Jews are behind the overthrow of the white people of the Christian nations. And this is the basic cause of what's happening in the world and what the international bankers are up to. So let's have a look now at a speech given by a rabbi back in 1952 there in Budapest in Hungary. And this was to all the rabbis talking about World War III. We're going to begin by looking at this book called Pawns in the Game by William Dreikar. And in this book it points out the speech that was given by Rabbi Emmanuel Rabinovich way back in 1952 in Budapest, Hungary to a meeting of the Emergency Council of Rabbis. And so let's have a look at this speech now that was given. Greetings, my children. You have been called here to recapitulate the principal steps of our new program. As you know, we had hoped to have 20 years between wars to consolidate the great gains which we made from World War II. But our increasing numbers in certain vital areas is arousing opposition to us and we must now work within every means at our disposal to precipitate World War III within five years. And of course, the Korean War happened five years after the end of World War II and also the takeover of China and the Communist Revolution. And so this is the beginning of World War III. The goal which we have striven so concertedly for for 3,000 years is at last within our reach, and because its fulfillment is so apparent, it behooves us to increase our efforts and our caution tenfold. I can safely promise you that before 10 years have passed, our race will take its rightful place in the world with every Jew a king and every Gentile a slave. Applause from the gathering. You remember the success of our propaganda campaign during the 1930s, which aroused anti-American passions in Germany, at the same time we were arousing anti-German passions in America, a campaign which culminated in the Second World War. The similar propaganda campaign is now being waged intensively throughout the world. A war fever is being worked up in Russia by an incessant anti-American barrage, while a nationwide anti-communist scare is sweeping America. This campaign is forcing all of the smaller nations to choose between the partnership of Russia or an alliance with the United States, and of course this represents the Cold War years, doesn't it? Our most pressing problem at the moment is to inflame the lagging militaristic spirit of the Americans. The failure of the Universal Military Training Act was a great setback to our plans, but we are assured that a suitable measure will be rushed through Congress immediately after the 1952 elections. The Russians, as well as the Asiatic peoples, are well under control and offer no objections to war, 
but we must wait to secure the Americans. This we hope to do with the issue of anti-Semitism, which works so well on the United Americans against Germany. We're counting heavily on reports of anti-Semitic outrages in Russia to help whip up indignation in the United States and produce a front of solidarity against the Soviet power, simultaneously to demonstrate to Americans the reality of anti-Semitism we will advance through new sources large sums of money to outspokenly anti-Semitic elements in America to increase their effectiveness, and we shall stage anti-Semitic outbreaks in several of their largest cities. This will serve the double purpose of exposing reactionary movements in America, which can be silenced and diverting the United States into a devoted anti-Russian unit. Within five years, this program will achieve its objective, the Third World War, which will surpass in destruction all previous contests. Israel, of course, will remain neutral, and when both sides are devastated and exhausted, will arbitrate sending a control commission into all wrecked countries. This war will end for all time a struggle against Gentiles. We will openly reveal our identity to the races of Africa and Asia. I can say with assurance that the last generation of white children is now being born. Our control commissions were in the interest of peace and wiping out interracial tensions forbid the whites to mate with whites. The white woman must cohabit members of the dark races and white men with black women. Thus the white race will disappear for mixing the dark with the white means the end of the white man. And our most dangerous enemy will only become a memory. We shall embark upon an era of 10,000 years of peace and plenty, the Pax Judaica and our race will rule undisputed over the world, our superior intelligence will easily enable us to retain mastery over a world of dark peoples. Question from the gathering. Rabbi Rabinovich, what about various religions after the Third World War? Rabinovich, there will be no more religions. Not only will the existence of a priest class remain a constant danger to our rule, but belief in an afterlife would give spiritual strength to irreconcilable elements in many countries and enable them to resist us. We will, however, retain the rituals and customs of Judaism as a mark of our hereditary ruling caste, strengthening our racial laws so that no Jew will be allowed to marry outside our race, nor will any stranger be accepted by us. We may have to repeat the grim days of World War II when we were forced to let the Hitlerite bandits sacrifice some of our people in order that we may have adequate documentation and witnesses to legally justify our trial and execution of the leaders of America and Russia as war criminals after we have dictated the peace. I'm sure you will need little preparation for such a duty, for sacrifice has always been a watchword of our people, and the death of a few thousand Jews in exchange for world leadership is indeed a small price to pay. To convince yourself of the certainty of that leadership, let me point out to you how we've turned all of the inventions of the white man into weapons against him. His printing presses and radios are the mouthpieces of our desires. His heavy industry manufactures the instruments which he sends out to arm Asia and Africa against him. Our interests in Washington are greatly extending the point four program for developing industry in backward areas of the world so that after the industrial parts and cities of Europe and America are destroyed by atomic warfare, the whites can offer no resistance against the large masses of the dark races who will maintain unchallenged technological superiority. 
And so, with the vision of world victory before you, go back to your countries and intensify your good work until that approaching day when Israel will reveal herself in all her glorious destiny as the light of the world. Illuminati means holder of the light. And so we heard the rabbi there say that the history of the Jews and the white people go back 3,000 years. And it does. It goes back to the Old Testament times. And we know this. We know who the Jews are. They are the Udameans. And the Udameans are the people that moved into Judea from the land of Edom to the south of Israel. And they're part white because Esau was a, a white man and he went out and married two Turkish women and also an Ishmaelite woman who are the Arabs today. And so we know who the Jews are, that their race is this mixture of white blood and also Turkish blood and also uh, Egyptian blood. And we know that the Ishmaelites themselves are part white and part Egyptian from the liaison between Abraham and Hagar who created the boy Ishmael. And of course Muhammad was an Ishmaelite and the royal family claim their inheritance goes all the way back to Muhammad. And so we know the history of the Jews and we know that they were the people that lived in the region called Edom to the south of Israel. And we see Petra down there and we see what was called El Kaznet. And El Kaznet was the treasury of the Khazarian Jews, the Kazites way back in the day. And today these people have risen up and they're trying to claim back the inheritance that Esau lost from Jacob. And so that's why there's this diversity between the white people and the Christians and the Jews. And of course the Jews hate the white people. In the year 2034, the President of the United States is a woman. Jonas Brothers songs are considered classics. And the world is about to go to war. If there is a villain in this book, uh, the villain is war itself. And if there's a message, the message is that war should be avoided at all costs. And Elliot Ackerman knows war. He is a decorated U.S. Marine who did five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, winning a Bronze Star, Silver Star, and a Purple Heart. But Ackerman is also a journalist and a novelist, and his new book is 2034, a novel of the next world war, <laughs> co-authored with Admiral James Favritis. The truth <coughs> in the South China Sea. We are very much entering into a type of new cold war with China, um, but the frontier is not just nuclear, it also includes cyber. 2034 tells a harrowing tale that begins with the crew of a U.S. destroyer checking out what they think is a burning fishing trawler, but it's not. At the same time, a marine aviator is flying an F-35, testing new stealth technology near Iran, when he suddenly loses the ability to control his plane. Sounds like a computer glitch, but it's not. By the end of the first chapter, three U.S. warships are at the bottom of the ocean, and the marine pilot is a prisoner in Iran two seemingly unconnected events that turn out to be very much related. They are the beginning of a war with China that escalates into a world war. Yes, it's fiction, but given the credentials of the authors, it can also be taken as a warning.
If America right now is continuing to tell itself a story about American global dominance, our uh, lack of susceptibility to any threat, and that there is no nation on earth that can compete with us militarily or economically, and we continue to be the single great power in the world, that is probably a story that is going to get us in a lot of trouble. Thanks very much for joining us. Before we get started, we want to let folks know that your book, 2034, is available at Left Bank Books here in the Central West End. So how do you classify this book? Is it fiction or prediction? I think it's a cautionary tale is probably the best way to classify it. So, you know, I mean, it's really it's a work of speculative fiction. Imagine what the world would look like started by the United States and China in 2040, 2034, the aforementioned year of the title. We could put it off to 2043, would be okay with yeah. me. It sounds pretty dreadful. <laughs> you uh, are a journalist as well as an author and many other things. Had you given any consideration to attacking this topic from a nonfiction point of view first, or did you decide that there was, had to be a, a great fiction book in this and you wanted to jump into that? I think a lot has been written in the nonfiction realm of journalism and in policy papers around issues of arising China, but I think far less have been written uh, in terms of fiction, character-based uh, narratives. And uh, it was also the fundamental of this book was the idea of adding to you know what had once been kind of a rich shelf of speculative fiction around the Third World War. Um, you know, books like uh, The Third World War by General John Hackett or um, films like Dr. Strangelove. And that type of speculative storytelling, I would argue, was one of the things that actually kept us out of a war because we had so richly imagined the consequences that we had come to a mutual conclusion with our Soviet adversaries that such a war would be completely devastating and not in anybody's best interests. Is that why you chose a year that's in the future but not? way, way off in the future. That's, what, 13 years from now. You could have written it any time, and I suppose the further out you made it, the more uh, fanciful it could have become as far as the technology and so forth. Well, interestingly enough, when the when the project began, the date was a little bit more fuzzy. Um, and I've, I've done a number of books, and my books always come kind of in two variants. One's where the title is immediately obvious from the beginning, and one where the title only comes much later. And this book was of the latter category. The title came much later. So, um, so part of the process of writing this book was it began kind of in the 2050s, 2060s, but the more got into the story, the more that date, kind of almost like a tide coming up the beach, kind of like getting closer and closer to our toes, and, uh, and we've done so much work talking about, you know, when is this exactly that we realize, you know, it's in the year 2034. And, oh, by the way, this is also going to be the title of the book. Well, some interesting things going on in 2034, uh, World War notwithstanding. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that you have very strong female characters in here, two uh, military commanders who play critical roles, and the president of the United States is a woman. I, I, is she the first woman president? Do we know? I know she doesn't have a political party. 
Well, I think the fact that she doesn't have a political party is far more interesting than the idea that she is a woman. I mean, I think, I, listen, I would be astounded if by the year 2034 we hadn't had at least one female president. And we don't say specifically in the book whether she's the first or the second or the third. Um, but to me, that seems far less remarkable. And if one wanted to tell a credible story of what a war would look like with China in 2034, the depiction of the U.S. military is absolutely going to contain a number of very central female characters, because that is what the U.S. military looks like right now. You know, for instance, one of the key characters in the book is a woman named Admiral Sarah Hunt, and her backstory is she comes out of naval special warfare, being part of the, one of the first generations of female SEALs, and that is happening right now. So. Um, to make this book credible, if the cast of characters looked like the cast of characters from like the the, movie, the film Midway or something, I don't think that would be a realistic depiction of what our military is going to look like uh, in the next decade. I was asking particularly about the president because it seemed to me that the president may be making some decisions based on the idea that she doesn't want to appear weak because she is a woman, and some people would still interpret that as a as a weakness to worry about. I would say it's less that she is worried about appearing weak necessarily because she's a woman, but just because all presidents fear being weak. Actually, in writing that part, the, the person who I was sort of thinking of, or at least the strategic dynamic I was thinking of, was uh, that of President Kennedy in the early 1960s and in our involvement with, in Vietnam, where one of the things Kennedy is, uh, you know, after the Eisenhower administration, was very concerned about, because he was a relatively young president, was being perceived as weak on the Soviet Union. And his fear of being perceived as weak made him feel as though he couldn't withdraw from Vietnam and led to our continued troop presence there. So again, in this book, though, it's very much a character-driven book. And there is, throughout the narrative, you'll see a desire to get into the minds of these characters. Uh, and that includes the president, who is more of an ancillary character, but also really the five principal characters in the novel who have a range of a variety of backgrounds, some Americans, some Chinese, uh, Iranians, and others. There are already a number of nations involved in this story, uh, but of course China is, is the main one that I guess you could say was the aggressor in, in the story. Uh, why did you go for China as opposed to Russia or North Korea or... Iran, uh, and parenthetically might add that I was really interested in the fact that uh, you still got Vladimir Putin in charge of Russia in 2034, so he'll be, he'll be happy to know that. But why did you go with China? Well, I think right now when you look around the world, China represents the most significant threat to the United States by far. It is our nearest peer-level nation, uh, both economically, also now militarily. The Chinese Navy, for instance, today is larger than the United States Navy. I think one can argue that the caliber of U.S. Navy ships exceeds that of Chinese ships, but there are number by number more Chinese ships. And that we have a real flashpoint that exists right now in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, and, oh, by the way, to cap it all off, and this is a new development, meaning it uh, proceed, or proceeded the writing of this book, we're also coming out of a global pandemic that started in China. So how the United States navigates its relationship with China in the next 15 to 20 years is going to be of the utmost importance in how the 21st century develops. I was interested in seeing the pandemic reference in the book. I'm wondering if the severity of the U.S. response to what China does in the book is because of, in part, lingering ill will from the pandemic. We began writing the book before the pandemic. So, I um, mean, there are a couple of areas in the book where real-life events 
we had to contend with them as we were putting this book together because they sort of overtook the narratives that, that we were playing out. Um, I would say I don't see – I don't look at China as being necessarily a villain in this book. There really are no villains. And uh, in terms of the Chinese characters, when they step onto the page you know, and they, they make their case to the reader and they're making their case to the reader like they're making their case before God, you see how they view the world. And if we've done our job well, you'll be able to understand how they view the world and how they understand that U.S. naval patrols in the South China Sea, which are, you know, right up to their shores, uh, they view as very aggressive and um, how they view the United States as hypocritical in some ways. So um, they get to make their case. The Americans make their case. Um, you know, without giving too much away, nuclear weapons are employed in this book. The Americans are the ones who strike first. So we're trying to create something that's realistic. If there is a villain in this book, uh, the villain is war itself. And if there's a message, the message is that war should be avoided at all costs. At the center of this story, of course, is technology, uh, cyber warfare, really. Do we need a, a cyber force? I would say that we do. I think this is going to be, and already is, frankly, a critical space in our national defense. I mean... In two words, right? Solar winds. Just this year alone, 400 of the Fortune 500 companies were hacked into um, by the Russians. You know, additionally, that hack penetrated vast swaths of our U.S. cyber infrastructure. Both the United States and China and other nations have the capability to completely cripple. Uh, one another's infrastructure, whether it's our electric grids, our power supply. So the the challenge that exists with cyber, though, is it's, it, it is not something we can easily see. You know, most Americans don't understand the scope of the threat because the threat is not necessarily visible. But that doesn't mean it is not as existential as threats that we knew before from like the nuclear threat. And I think it's high time that we put in place the essential methods of deterrence that we will need to avoid such a catastrophic effect. So we are very much entering into a type of new cold war with China, um, but the frontier is not just nuclear, it also includes uh, cyber, uh, and we need to shore up our cyber vulnerabilities. Would there be such a thing as mutually assured destruction working to keep these cyber wars in check as it's done with, with nuclear war? I think what, what the current, if I were in the current administration right now, I think we need to be making the, the moves and the overtures to our peer-level adversaries in the realm of cyber to, to establish basically regimes of mutually assured deterrence. Um, so we, so they very clearly know that if they strike us, we will strike them and we will be able to wipe one another out and assure that those attacks never happen. But again, I think for many Americans, the challenge has been this is difficult, more difficult to conceptualize, um, but the threat is every bit as profound. Yeah, I opened my Facebook account today and on the page was a reminder that it was two years ago today that we interviewed Janet Napolitano on this program about her book. And one of the points that she made about her selection as Homeland Security Secretary by President Obama was that he thought that she had a very dark imagination, uh, which she took as a compliment. <laughs> do we have enough people in Washington with dark imaginations, or do we need to find some? Because this is a pretty dark story. I don't know, potentially dark imaginations, although I appreciate what you're saying, about them, but just imagination in general, right? The, um, you know, the writer George Saunders, who, who I admire, said recently of this past year, 2020, that 2020 is a year represented of failure in American storytelling, meaning the stories that we tell ourselves were insufficient to the challenge of that year. And I think 
whether it's imagination or the stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves, it's important we get those stories right. So specifically, if America right now is continuing to tell itself a story about American global dominance, our uh, lack of susceptibility to any threat, and that there is no nation on earth that can compete with us militarily or economically, and we continue to be the single great power in the world, that is probably a story that is going to get us in a lot of trouble. I think we need to recognize the fact that we do have peer competitors, both militarily and in issues like cyber, and that we need to be imagining how those threats could manifest to compromise our national security. Um, like to give you one specific example of American storytelling, um, you ever see the, the series Band of Brothers? Yes, on HBO. Yeah, HBO, great series. Um, I would argue that that series, you know, captures a type of zeitgeist. Uh, that doesn't so much exist today around the wars, the greatest generation. That was a story that we were telling ourselves a while ago, but we don't seem to be telling ourselves as much today. I've always thought it was very fascinating that Band of Brothers premiered on HBO on September 10th, 2001. So the story we were telling ourselves right before 9-11 was sort of a throwback to the Second World War, and that was who we were and we're going to be. So what are the stories we're telling ourselves right now? Oftentimes we're not cognizant of what those stories are, and I think it's important that we are to allow us to imagine our way um, out of future threats. Well, and I suppose one of the many terrifying scenarios is a combination of the nuclear and the cyber war. At one point in the book, you talk about uh, cyber weapons being used to turn smart bombs not into dumb bombs, but into brain-dead bombs. Right. Uh, I suppose that's a real possibility. At solar winds, I mean, they, they didn't launch anything, obviously, but they started to get into that part of uh, the defense system. I think it's, it's, it's interesting that the book very much deals with technology, but this idea that technology sometimes isn't enough, right? It's not enough that you have the most state-of-the-art technology. You also have to have the right technology for the moment. Um, like, for example, if, if you're a student of history... You might know that in the you know the 15th century there was the Battle of Agincourt. If you remember the Battle of Agincourt, that's when a group of heavily armored French French knights tried to rush across a muddy field and attack a bunch of unarmored English longbowmen. Well, the English longbowmen won that battle because they had a bunch of arrows. So, did it matter that the French knights had the most state-of-the-art armor in the world? No, not at all. They bogged down in the mud and were killed by something as basic as a bow and arrow. So, you've got to have the right technology too. Yeah, you seem to be making a case a little bit in the book for having too much technology is a bad thing. First of all, it makes us vulnerable because we're so reliant on technology, but uh, that, you know, it's technology at the cost of perhaps really knowing what to do if you don't have that technology available to you. Your, your hero of the story, one of them, uh, is the uh, Major uh, Chris Mitchell. Wedge, I can't point to say Wedge. That's <laughs> his nickname. But, um, uh, you know, his plane gets taken over and he ends up in Iran as a prisoner. Do the military services teach pilots, captains, so forth, how to work without all that technology in case there is some sort of a breach? Yes, increasingly so now. Um, I think the word, I don't know if it is a word, but you get my meaning, is primitivization. So we are, we are making things more primitive again. I think that is a somewhat newer development. For instance, uh, midshipmen learning how to navigate by sextant, which is something that 15 years ago they weren't willing to do, but now they've gone back and learned how to do that. Or in my case, I was a Marine. 
Marine lieutenants learning how to go on patrol without just a GPS, but also using an old lensatic compass. So that's very important because it's not just the technology isn't enough. You can have the technology, but you also have to have the ability to be adaptive. And if you're totally reliant on the technology, you lose your adaptive, uh, your your ability to adapt. Um, and so I think we are seeing a com- a combined focus on technology and the ability of the leaders to adapt in the field when that technology is not working. Well, and I may be conflating uh, two things here that really don't have anything to do with each other, but for the moment I'm going to think that they do. In the book, you have the F-35 as the plane that uh, the major is flying that gets taken over technologically. The F-35 is an actual plane that I think recently was dubbed a failure because it had too much technology and it wasn't working. Well, without getting into too many details of the book, I will say that the first aircraft you see in this book in Chapter 1 is a state-of-the-art F-35, which are currently in use now, although the acquisition process of the F-35 was long and painful and over budget. But the last airframe you see being used in the book is a first-generation F-18 Hornet from about circa 1990. Um, So you see a process of these characters having to adapt to the fact that their technology, their state-of-the-art technology is no longer doing what they want to do. So they kind of have to go back in and bring out the old stuff. It's interesting. You get into some inner monologues of some of the Chinese characters in this and, and some of their statements as well. One is about uh, that uh, a thousand years from now, America will no longer exist. But the one that really jumped out at me uh, is the Chinese, I guess he's the admiral, the Chinese admiral saying that... Um, uh, America will do what what always happens is it will it will collapse from within, uh, which is a scary enough thought just in the abstract. But given what we've seen lately, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, is that the sort of thing he might have meant? I think that character, that's very much what he is alluding to. Um, and there's a part in the book where he uh, quotes Abraham Lincoln, who expressed a similar sentiment in 1860 in the speech that he gave. Basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but Lincoln basically said that, you know, it doesn't, the greatest army on the earth could not come to the United States and take a drink from the Ohio River, that that Americans are going to live as free men uh, throughout all times or die by suicide. And that idea that as much as this book is a book that is focused on external threats to the United States is manifest by a Chinese threat, a Russian threat, an Iranian threat, that the United States' ability to navigate those threats is very much much contingent upon its ability to hold together at home. You may not want to go here, but I'll just ask anyway, since uh, I have the advantage of having you here as not only someone who's in the military, but as a journalist who's covered the military. Going back to what we were just talking about, did you notice or have any concerns when you were in the military about other members of the military and some extremist views? Because we saw on January 6th, several of the people who attacked the Capitol were ex-military. Is that a concern or just a coincidence? I would not say that I observed that when I was in the military. I will say just myself personally as a citizen, I am... And I don't say this from a perspective of being on the left or a perspective on being on the right. I say this is a perspective of being a, a U.S. citizen, that if you look back in history, the combination of having a very large standing military in a republic where the politics are dysfunctional, the internal politics are dysfunctional. I think we could say our internal politics right now are pretty dysfunctional, that that combination, large military, dysfunctional politics, in history, it doesn't go well. Um, and so I am concerned uh, about that as an issue in the United States, that 
that the military right now seems to be one of the only institutions that has yet to be overtly politicized. And heaven help us if we try to politicize our military. We were talking before about having a dark imagination. Does the Pentagon ever call on folks like yourself to kind of help them uh, game out some possible scenarios that maybe they aren't creative enough to think about? Um, well, I worked for the Pentagon for a number of years for the Department of Defense. You mean uh, the notable exception of having already been there? Sure. I, listen, and I've heard from a number of people who work in government who have read this book, enjoyed this book. Um, so in that way, yes, and they certainly do have top minds that uh, think about think about issues such as China, cyber, uh, and what the next threats are that will come to the United States, You know, whether or not those those voices that have the most foresight are always listened to, you know, that's usually the challenge. It's not that no one is saying what's coming next. I mean, there are people who are predicting a pandemic. The problem was no one was listening to them. For the longest time, I remember uh, even before 1984 and for years after 1984, that people were always referencing that novel as some sort of a yardstick about the, you know, the dystopian future that we might face. I'm wondering if you think there's a chance that 2034 might become sort of that same kind of a yardstick. Well, I think that the, you know, the book and choosing a year for the title is a nice way to kind of put a marker on the wall, and it also places the book within a literary tradition that, yes, obviously there's Orwell's 1984. You know, there's also Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think, you know, as the date approaches, you know, you can always say, well, is this what it's really going to be like when the year hits? And frequently, you know, it's not exactly what that narrative is, but then when you look back at it, it's a, it, it is a a nice way to think about how people were were imagining these events in the past as we try to imagine our future. You have a co-author on this book, Admiral James Devridis. How did it come to be that you had a co-author? How does that work as sort of a process question here, I guess? Uh, you know, does someone write one chapter and someone write the other chapter? And also, did one of you have the idea and bring it to the other, or what got you guys onto this idea? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, this, this book was uh, absolutely a, a total partnership, and originally it was uh, Admiral Stavridis' idea. Um, his idea was, you know, let's write a book that imagines a war between the U.S. and China, primarily at sea, in 2034. And so he approached our shared editor at Penguin Press with this idea, who said, well, you know, love the idea, um, totally understand what, you know, the tradition that you'd be writing into. Um, I think it would be great if you worked with a novelist, and like, aren't you and Elliot friends? And so the Admiral and I had known each other for uh, the better part of the decade. We're both graduates of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, where he was later the dean. And when he was the dean, he brought me on for a semester to serve as writer in residence. And when he asked me to do this, he gave me a bullet point list of my responsibilities, one of which was talk to the dean about books when he feels like it. So uh, Jim's a very deeply read guy, and we would sit around and talk about books. We shared an editor. So I very much knew his sensibility. And so when you know, the idea of working together on this project came up, uh, I, you know, I was very excited, and we had a very much a shared vision of what the book could be. And so it was a, a lot of fun writing it. Um, you know, in terms of process, we would sit there, and you know, each chapter, we did it by chapters. And uh, you know, we would just go in a lot of detail, outline every single chapter, write it, kick it back and forth between the two of us when we thought it was in good shape, and we'd move to the next chapter. Did a lot of the ideas in this come from perhaps some frustration you might have had when you were in the military about things like drawing red lines that then get erased or skipped over, things like that? I wouldn't say like frustration. There was no score or anything. I think anyone was trying to settle in this book. I think it's really a accumulation of our experiences. Um, you know, I could I could go in and um, 
point to various spots in the book that, you know, this is something drawn from my experience. This is something that's directly drawn from Jim's experience. And, you know, then obviously whole facets of the book that are just completely imagined from whole cloth. So the book's very much a uh, combination of our imaginations and experience. I was struck by the fact that in the book you point out, uh, I assume it's a fact, that uh, the word in Chinese for crisis is the same word as opportunity. Is that real? Because that's kind of fascinating. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And the idea... And the idea also coming out of that, which is, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Well, sort of just by way of wrapping up, uh, this, not to make light of it, but it sounds like something would make a, a surefire hit movie. Has anybody talked about that? I mean, we have a few people who are interested in it, so, um, you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed, but, you know, you never know. Who would you have play Wedge? You know... I've joked with the Admiral about this because one or two people have asked us this question. I finally came to the consensus that, you know, if this was a film, uh, I decided that he and I would kind of tackle the project like Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy, and we would just play every role just wearing lots of makeup. Well, the book is 2034. Uh, hopefully you're wrong about all of this and none of it comes true. <laughs> but, uh, boy, it's, it seems like it's really on point. Uh, and it's also available, again, folks, at Left Bank Books in the Central West End. Lovely Ackerman, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Paul. And I like to say, for a grim book, we had a lot of fun writing it. Decades after the end of the Second World War, the countries of the world continually grew unrestrained. Eventually, after draining Earth's natural resources, each society around the globe began to collapse, leaving only two remaining superpowers, America and China. While still suffering from the lack of oil, thanks to its superior atomic energy development, America was able to keep its head above the water. China, however, was still very much reliant on fossil fuels. Rather than crumbling like the other nations before it, China desperately sought out new sources of oil. After America swiped the last underwater oil reserve out from under them, and with America's refusal to export any fuel to them, China chose to invade Alaska, the only other remaining place with oil left in the world. It would allow them to continue with this new supply of oil, but America's retaliation would follow soon after. This would mark the beginning of the Sino-American War that would last for 11 years until 2077, when the U.S. finally pushed China out of Alaska and began carving through China's satellite states into their heartland. After 11 years, the U.S. was nearing victory, until October. On October 23, 2077, America, China, and seemingly all the other remaining nations would launch their entire nuclear arsenal, blanketing the surface in nuclear fire and silencing the entire world. Now what if? What if the Great War never happened? What would it look like? There's no one magic thing that can be changed to prevent the war. However, I think I can find a simple enough change to allow the US victory. War between nuclear capable nations is like chess between two sore losers. If one of them knows they're about to lose, they'll flip the board, ending it for both sides. Now granted, the same would happen after they lose, but in a war, the defeated nation will be unable to do anything, so you need to somehow win without them seeing it coming. Assuming that the power to launch China's nuclear arsenal rests in the hands of Chairman Cheng, 
then taking him out could prevent China from effectively launching a nuclear attack against the US. This, of course, is a lot easier said than done. So let's say by June 2077, US military high command accepts that with the continued push into Chinese territory, the inevitability China will launch their nuclear payload rather than surrender is absolute. With this in mind, a plan to ensure China's complete defeat is put in place. The first and most important objective is to eliminate the head of the snake, Chairman Cheng. A full assault of the city or use of a small strike team may be courses of action. However, both would require heavy preparation and could easily fail, whether through defeat at the hands of the enemy or simply alertion of their position to the enemy. No, the best option would be one that the tech boys have been working on an orbital strike weapon that could take out any target around the globe with one strike. But make no mistake, this is an all-or-nothing play. There will be a full invasion of the city, and special operations will be deployed to confirm the strike hits its target. The reality that some silos will launch, even if the chairman is killed, also has to be accepted. There's little to counteract this. The US will have to initiate first strikes on any known missile silos to prevent them from launching. To ensure the US has plenty of time, the invading forces need to slow their assault, dig in and make it appear as though it's a natural loss of momentum. But relying on the acting skills of the troops would be a foolish play. In actuality, the troops will be losing momentum because supplies and new equipment will be funneled into reserve for the invasion of the capital. In the meantime, the US spends its remaining resources on planting spies and locating every last nuclear silo. The months pass, and as expected, the lack of supplies causes the American morale to plummet, and China slowly begins taking back territory, except off China's east coast, where the supply remains steady enough to ensure a delicate balance. By October, the PLA have almost pushed US forces out of China, and now it's time to strike. Every part of the plan has been prepared. The US is at DEFCON 2. Most of the third fleet is en route to China, and the Bradley Hercules is moving into fire position. At 4am China Standard Time, on October 23rd, the Pacific Fleet launches swarms of fighters and newly developed vertebrates into the sky. The fleet moves west to draw the enemy away. At 4.05, the US launches sea-based and land-based warheads on known Chinese silos. At 4.10, with the Bradley at fire position, it releases all eight of its salvos, raining fire down on the chairman's palace for two continuous minutes. At 4.11, the first of the air fleet reaches Beijing and begins leveling the city. At 4.18, the vertebrates start deploying troops over the city. At 4.19, the first wave of missiles touch down on Chinese soil. At 4.31, ground forces confirm the chairman is dead. At 4.34, the second wave of missiles touch down on Chinese soil. At 4.40, NORAD confirms three Chinese warheads inbound. At 4.55, Portland, Dallas, and Chicago are confirmed hit with nuclear weapons. While the world still tastes some of the nuclear fire that mankind holds, humanity itself is saved from feeling the full force of nuclear devastation. And after October 23rd, the world keeps moving. Following the death of the chairman and much of the PLA leadership in the initial bombing of Beijing, the Pacific Fleet punctures through the defenses of the disorganized Chinese forces and reinforces the East Coast invasion, hunting down the last of the Chinese leadership. As the rest of the US forces begin receiving supplies again, 
they too start putting pressure on the crumbling Chinese forces, fracturing them even further as they make full use of the new power armor suits. From here on out, victory is assured. Back on the home front, however, the situation is rapidly declining. The nukes that hit the country left tens of thousands dead and millions displaced, putting further strain on already scarce resources. Apart from the mass housing that had to be set up for these people, Appalachia is facing crisis as well. The robots in the city of Watoga have gone haywire and started killing civilians, causing the city to be evacuated and the military to set up a quarantine. The riots are also getting worse. The National Guard have been deployed to multiple places in the region. At least the FEV program is continuing as planned, which is more than can be said for the California branch of the project. The soldiers of the California branch have declared an open rebellion from the government. This cannot be allowed. A state of emergency has been declared and all reserve personnel have been activated to keep order. By November, the police become almost redundant in most places. It all falls to the military to maintain order. The food becomes scarcer and scarcer as the struck cities have become dead zones and the farms surrounding them are abandoned because of radiation poisoning. In the cities surrounding the dead zones, food riots and other violence becomes more common by the day. The military starts enforcing curfews and executing people in the streets for rioting, causing mass graves to be dug to dump the bodies. In California, the military begins what is publicly said to be a training exercise, but in reality is an extermination of a rebellion. Troops deploy into the California desert and move to surround the Mariposa military base that the rebels are holding. Swarms of soldiers are sent in to neutralize the rebels. The rebels manage to mount an impressive defense, but after six hours of fighting, the last of the rebels are grouped up and executed. The facility is cleaned and restaffed, with research continuing as normal. The whole affair is covered up as a training accident, but still finds its way out and breeds hysteria amongst conspiracy and anti-government groups. This is only furthered when an article detailing the absence of the government in DC is published in the Boston newspaper. The newspaper is subsequently shut down for unknown reasons and the writer of the article is arrested for pro-communist sentiments. Rebel groups such as the Free States quietly begin growing in number. Other people begin asking questions, people high up in the government, in the military. They start wondering why the leadership is hiding so far away. Near the end of the month, the military finally clears out the last of the rogue robots plaguing Watoga and begins preparations to return the citizens to the city. As December comes, US forces in China have finally taken out enough of the leadership for the PLA to cease being an entity. The remaining PLA forces are merely terrorist cells now. As such, the US declares victory over China. It's good news for sure, but the main appeal is the distraction from the problems plaguing the country. The government quietly moves back into the White House, then proceeds to very publicly announce the victory, overinflating the importance of the victory tenfold just to keep as many eyes as possible away from what's going on around them. The war may be over, but they make sure everyone is aware that communist sympathizers may still be lurking and to be ever vigilant against anti-American and anti-government traitors. While vault stock price went up after the nuclear strikes on America, with the announcement of victory in China, vault and many other defense contractors' stock prices plummet, leading some of the executives to talk to their friends in the government. 
happens very quickly after the rumors spread of Chinese insurgents getting supplied by Russia. Then every politician, every newspaper, and every celebrity begins repeating the same message. The echo of the Cold War comes back once again, opening up old wounds and painting a new crosshair. As simple as that, Russia becomes the new bogeyman. Voltec and the other defense contractors, aided on by their stockholders in the government, say that Russia is preparing to invade America in their weakened state, simultaneously boosting the stock prices of those involved and diverting further attention away from the current situation in America. Westec is immediately offered more contracts to develop more power armor, with a request for a unit specifically for riot control. Back in China, the new government is being set up, establishing China as the 15th Commonwealth of the United States. New Year's comes and America celebrates a new year without war. But without the distraction, the more pressing problems come to light, and they won't be so easily scapegoated out of. The food situation is not improving, it's getting worse. The loss of farmland and displacement of millions of people is finally being felt in full. Perhaps it would have been more merciful had the Chinese been using high-yield nuclear weapons. Then the cities simply would have been wiped from the map. It would all be over in an instant, but instead they were low yield, resulting in much less instant death, but far more radiation. It would appear that God had saved the people that survived, but really he had only forsaken them to live. The city would be ruined either way, but with the lower yield, the humans, animals, and plants would survive, but would be poisoned with radiation, spreading the survivors like a plague, wandering to other cities that already can't support themselves, the survivors would slowly fade into nothing from hunger, pestilence, and the poison of radiation. The survivors have no way to feed themselves or access medical care beyond the meager handouts the government can afford to give. Most other people already find it difficult to afford enough to eat, and with automated industry ever expanding, more and more people are losing their jobs. As a result, more people, be they refugee or local, resort to crime to feed themselves. More graves are filled with body bags as the military executes rioters and food thieves. More soldiers refuse to shoot civilians and are sent to be experimented on by Westec and the FEB program. Contrastly, in the Commonwealth of China, or COC, the situation is slowly improving. The Commonwealth government is given plenty of freedom to do as they see fit, and they have plenty of support from the federal government. The federal government thinks they can continue to hold the home states through fear and deception, but they need to gain a proper hold over their new territory. To achieve this, they plan to do the same with their new commonwealth as they did with Canada. They need to build up enough infrastructure for the military so that the army can keep control of the region as the territory is fully incorporated as part of the United States. The government starts shipping over materials to begin constructing nuclear power sources. To begin with, mid-level nuclear power generators will be constructed for use at military bases and other official <coughs> buildings, while existing nuclear power plants will be upgraded and new ones over time will be built. With plenty of support from the Engineering Corps and automated construction, the government estimates that most power plants will be upgraded within six months and new power plants will be constructed within around 18 months. Given the time it will take to set up nuclear facilities, the U.S. authorizes limited shipments of fossil fuels to the COC. The Commonwealth government also starts registering the population as American citizens, though only as Type 2 citizens, like in Canada. 
immediately imposing new taxes on them and mandating English as the first language of the COC. Most people see minimal difference between the old and new government, but at least the war is over. The new government is slightly less authoritarian, the taxes are slightly less, and now the beliefs that would normally get you shot and the beliefs that would normally get favour have been switched around. That's about as much as anyone can say about their new overlords, at least for now. Through February, the US military continues to mop up the remaining terrorist cells throughout the COC. With superior equipment such as the T-51 powered combat suit, the scattered PLA remnants stand no chance against the American military. Some trouble is encountered with locating the terrorist cells as they hide in rural areas and the locals seem to be very open to aiding them. In the end, it only delays the inevitable. Once located, the terrorist cells and the local sympathizers are swiftly executed with minimal friendly casualties and military forces move on to the next holdout. The military continues to smash the remaining cells of the PLA into smaller and smaller pieces. Eventually, the only remaining PLA forces are either too small to track effectively or have fled into the Gobi Desert. There are even reports that some groups may have moved through the former Mongolia area up to the border to receive aid from the Russians. If the PLA move into Russia, there's little the military can do. But the immediate threat in the COC has been reduced enough, and the government decides it can now start sending troops back home. And that they do. By May, 200,000 troops are back home, with a million more well on the way. The government is pleased to have the extra reinforcements behind them, but unfortunately for them, significantly less people than they thought wanted to stay in the military. Most took the chance to be discharged even when further service was offered resulting in an influx of fresh civilians coming back into the population. It quickly becomes apparent that the return of the overseas forces will be detrimental to the government. While the government hoped that more military forces would be able to provide security for them and control the population, the mass dischargement from the military meant that the problems would only be exacerbated. The food problem may ease slightly, but thanks to mass automation there certainly won't be enough jobs. Veterans finding jobs back home after a war is normally a massive issue, but when on top of most jobs being filled, many don't exist anymore thanks to automation, well, tens of thousands of people came back home just to live in the streets. As this reality becomes clear to the veterans of the war, they begin to side against the government and the practices that led to the situation. Significant numbers of veterans begin protesting against the current establishment alongside the rest of the population. As the active military is sent in again and again to break up these riots, many veterans find themselves at the other end of Uncle Sam's gun sights. They see how their country has changed in the years they've been absent, so they do what the government taught them to do, fight. Some begin joining underground movements like the Free States, swelling their numbers further, while others create their own militias. Most of it is small rural communities, creating it as their own defense against crime and other threats, rather than letting the military handle it. So it had begun. Small communities had begun forming defensive militias. So it seems the government got the army they wanted. The only problem was that it was standing against them. To add insult to injury, in Appalachia, Hornwright Mining finally manages to perfect the advanced auto miner design using the knowledge gained from taking over the rival mining company Garahan the year prior. 
With the completion of the advanced auto miners, Hornwright deploys them en masse to all their sites, firing all the remaining human workers that were left over from Garahan. When the already struggling mining towns hear about this, it's the final nail in the coffin. They go absolutely berserk. Thousands start ransacking Hornwright property, beating the employees and burning their buildings. The entire state is lit up like a Christmas tree from the fires. As crowds start growing outside the Charleston Capitol building, the National Guard starts moving in. The guardsmen move through the streets in high numbers, deploying gas everywhere and shooting anyone that comes near them. Many take this as their notice to scram and do so. Others, united in their hatred of what they perceived as the corporations collaborating with the government to step on all the common folk, take up arms against the guardsmen. Some throw rocks and paint cans at the guardsmen. Some pull out their rifles, their pistols, their handmade weapons to fire at the guardsmen. Attempts to return fire are made, but the conscripts that pass for the National Guard aren't nearly accurate enough to effectively thin out the rioters' numbers. The rioters have complete advantage, attacking from high up windows or rooftops, places that the gas couldn't reach, preventing the guardsmen from being able to see the rioters while they shoot them. As the troops are surrounded and have no chance of counterattacking properly in the open urban environments, all across West Virginia, National Guard troops retreat from the urban areas. To deal with what could only be described as an open rebellion against the government, action has to be taken. The Air Force is mobilized to exterminate this threat. Within two hours, after the National Guard failed to contain the situation, Air Force planes are flying over Appalachia and immediately they begin firebombing the towns, laying waste to anywhere that resisted. In the aftermath, the survivors of the assault mostly all flee the towns, knowing what would happen to them. The majority seek refuge and vengeance through joining the militias that have been building up, knowing the government stayed away from the communities that were protected by such militias. The Free States, while being one of the few underground militias, is the biggest in West Virginia and gains a massive surge of new members teaching them how to survive on the land and build secret bunkers throughout the wilderness. And anonymity was vital to the survivors. After the rural towns of Appalachia were burnt down, the military sifted through the ashes, executing everyone they found. Even Charleston, which had only had minimal rioting, was filled with a battalion of troops the following day going door to door arresting suspected rebels. As the months go on, more and more veterans return home, and with each boatload of them, the militias and the government's problems grow. After a short while, the government starts preventing boats from bringing anyone home, inventing reasons for the armed forces in the COC to continue operating in such large numbers. This was certainly strange to the remaining military forces in the COC, as the situation was secure and in fact improving beyond what it was in the home states, and by all means better than Canada, which to the soldiers was one explanation for why the government would keep them in service. The federal government had left Canada with almost nothing. Their government no longer existed, and what remained served the interests of the US. There were attempts to improve the condition of the failed state. The industrial sector was put to great work to support the American war machine. A massive campaign was set up to convince corporations and citizens to invest in projects and property in Canada. However, it was all unsuccessful. Many suspected they would try the same with China, and many suspected it would fail again. Thanks to this failure, among many others, Canada, rather than becoming a part of the American empire as most envisioned it, 
It would more accurately be described as a dying man giving all his blood to the man dying beside him. So in a way, Canada isn't faring much worse than the U.S. proper. The federal government has no interest in even entertaining the idea of pouring any more resources into Canada. Not when there's a ready supply of soldiers throughout North America. Provided those soldiers don't mutiny, which is becoming an ever-increasing concern, if Canada tries anything, the government can just send more troops there to crush any resistance. In that regard, at least, Canada has truly become part of the US. The reason that the people in the COC knew it would be different than Canada, that this time it would work, was because they knew the government's power didn't stretch so far over the Pacific. Their army could break down one empire and build another, but whether they could maintain it was the question. The American government could keep their people loyal through a common cause, and when needed, a common enemy. It only needs to use force on anti-Americans, hence why the annexed nations are a problem. Their membership in the United States was gained when they were conquered. They were opposing the United States, so force is the natural response to keep them in line. Where Canada is a much smaller nation compared to the US proper, so force can be relied on if integration fails, the civilian population of China is massively larger than the US military, sitting around 300 million more than the total population of the home states. The US military could wipe out the civilians, but if they were to start an organized rebellion or even cooperate with any remaining PLA units, the military would either have to take significant losses wiping them all out, or just burn everything to the ground. That's why giving the police equipment is a gamble. They'll be able to better keep order with it, but if a rebellion does occur, they might turn. The people in the COC could judge for themselves though. A rebellion seemed unlikely. The government was trying very hard to establish the COC as a stable state. Millions worth of industrial support was being sent over the Pacific, and it seemed that competent people who were actually interested in the common good were put in charge, as opposed to the regular type of politician that made it to office. This effective leadership likely isn't a mistake either. It's allowed the nuclear plants to be upgraded effectively and marked plenty of old Chinese factories for renovation, providing the basics for import of American industry to the new frontier. With help from the federal government advertising the COC as a great opportunity for business, the Commonwealth government is able to secure many deals with different companies to come over and begin producing in the region. Given the scope of everything they intend to bring over, that being enough to completely erase any remnant of Chinese business, it's bound to take a long time, years at a minimum. But the government has to start somewhere. Given all of the businesses in China were owned by the government, once the Commonwealth government was established, all control went to them. So the matter of accommodating the new corporations setting up in the COC is relatively simple. With any company that strikes a deal to set up in the COC, they're allocated an old Chinese company and their associated assets that's compatible with a new business. The old Chinese portion is merged into the American company and the facilities are modified to suit the needs of the new operations. There's mild outrage from the companies being absorbed, yet there's nothing they can do about it. The Commonwealth government is careful to limit the amount of automation and forces the new businesses to utilize a largely human workforce. The first wave of businesses all set up by mid-September. Along with them, they rapidly introduce other forms of nuclear power, batteries, generators, engines. Now they're all being produced in the COC. 
moving the plans of the government further along and enabling the locals to begin indulging the American lifestyle and all its consumery goodness. The onslaught of Americana erodes at what's left of the local identity of being Chinese. Everything begins to look as it does on the other side of the Pacific. Everything from car brands like Corvega and Chrysler to American accounting firms have cropped up in the COC. To take advantage of this, the government slowly begins knocking down traditional buildings and replaces them with more modernized American-looking buildings. In November, the USSA reveals that the mission to land a man on Mars is ready and will commence in the coming weeks. This serves to distract the public, if not just a little. It's a great opportunity for the government. They're able to flex their power to the world once again, hopefully winning back the American people with this display of power. And if not, well... Surveys of the surface could prove useful for assessing Mars as a possible fallback plan if the situation deteriorates any further. As everyone all over the globe tunes in on their TVs or radios to watch the launch of the rocket, the pressure is on for the project to be successful. Luckily for the US, the launch goes off without a hitch, sending the first astronauts off to Mars. The rocket is estimated to reach Mars in six months, but for now, the US has the glory of a successful launch. The distraction this affords from the problems facing the country is short-lived. Painting Russia as the new boogeyman also isn't working. The US even puts troops at the border where there were reports of PLA forces retreating to, but Russia won't play ball. They hold their ground and the public is becoming numb to the anti-Russian propaganda. The government needs a new enemy and fast, but no one wants to step up. There's also the possibility that another full-scale war could potentially be unwinnable by the U.S. in its current state. So after a short while, the perfect answer presents itself. Cuba. They're communist, they possess nuclear weapons, and they're a small enough country that won't pose a real threat to the U.S. Some preparation needs to be made to ensure that it can be done, but that's all trivial stuff. The government has their next target, they just need to wait for the right moment. December comes and the downward spiral of American society continues to run perfectly parallel to the upwards trend of new American society in the COC. As food becomes scarcer in the home states, the Commonwealth government funds more farms every day. It doesn't make sense. The Department of Agriculture has received more funding than ever before, but its spending just doesn't reflect that. It's like the money is just disappearing, or it's being used for something else. Whatever the case, the COC is doing better in virtually all aspects compared to the US. Of course, by the standards of 20 years ago, both are doing terribly, but the COC is still significantly better off. Even most of the companies are putting more focus there because the better state of the economy means more profit. What used to be communist China merely a year ago now lies closer to reaching the American dream than anywhere else. The locals are even allowed to enter the military now, with double the patriotism course length, obviously. Each step the Commonwealth government takes chisels away at what little part of China remains, and with any luck, they will have erased it completely by the 4th of July. As Christmas comes around, the wheel of capitalism starts spinning full throttle. The government makes sure to hype up the holiday season to an incredible level, introducing many people to their first Christmas and further cementing American Western culture in their blood. While in the home states, Christmas is still a time of joy, but severely lacking compared to previous years. The holiday season only seems to remind people of the fact that they can't afford even the most basic necessities, let alone the extravagant items advertised to them everywhere. The rest of the holiday season doesn't fare much better either. 
As 2078 turns to 2079, the COC celebrates a proper American New Year for the first time, while most in the home states don't even pay attention to the celebration and continue on their miserable lives. Even the territory of Canada treats the event with some importance. No sooner that the New Year has begun is the US already moving their fleet in the Atlantic to encroach on Cuba's territory. The ships move into their territory slightly and move back. Nothing too serious just yet. Meanwhile, the federal government decides that it is time to stop propping up the COC with government funding. It should have been long enough for the investment to pay off. If it wants to continue, it has to survive under its own weight now. In fact, the government has fed the COC too much. It's time to let others feast on its harvest. The government starts a massive campaign promoting the idea of moving to the new frontier, where life and luxury await. This is paired with new enlistment campaigns to increase the military size. The government opens up travel restrictions and allows freedom of movement to and from the states and the frontier. Many of the troops stationed in the COC on the verge of mutiny are sent home, with the newly enlisted sent to the frontier. Although the enlistment rates are still severely below the government's expectations, even with the situation as bad as it is, with as many people living off the streets as they are, they would still rather that than be sent off to fight in another unending war. On the civilian side, however, it seems the prospect of moving to greener pastures is working well. Tens of thousands scramble to buy transport to the COC, hoping to find a better life there. The boats fill up fast, so fast that the boats run out and the lines start piling up. So the government resorts to using other ships not meant for humans. Oil tankers, animal transporters, it doesn't matter anyway, the undesirables will take whatever they can get. And the sooner they leave, the better. So fleets of boats begin departing the west coast, headed for the frontier. At the beginning with the first few boatloads, the soldiers and politicians are glad to have more proper Americans around and the locals find it intriguing to meet these Americans. Work and food still isn't easy to come by, but thanks to the rapid expansion of industry and farmland, it's significantly easier than the home states. But through February, as the refugees pile up, the cracks begin showing. The Commonwealth government is still trying to make enough space for the people that were displaced by the war. The entire construction sector of the Commonwealth is averaging one apartment building every month. They're built to house 100 people. A boatload of 500 refugees arrives every three days. The unemployment rate was 22% before. Now it's 26%, higher than the Great Depression. The food is the worst part. The Commonwealth government has been keeping it secret, but most of the farms are new and still growing. Either they have to let the food grow fully and leave thousands to starve, or ship out the undergrown food and have to plant more, causing potentially millions to die in the process. The government chooses the former. As soon as the projected famine is discovered, the government goes into full damage control, desperately trying to limit every source of food. MREs are cut by a third, food bank handouts are halved, heavy restrictions are put on the amount of food people can buy. It doesn't take too long before people catch on to this. As word spreads that there's a food shortage, people go crazy. Everyone starts rushing to the supermarkets, buying what they can, and looting what they can't. Fights break out over the smallest morsel of food. The government begins placing police officers at supermarkets, food banks, and anywhere else with food. The government also gives major movement orders to police departments. All the poor areas and refugee centres, the police are to withdraw from there. Better to let them kill each other quickly than to draw out their suffering. 
The biggest problem, however, and the one that is the main cause, is the refugee crisis. The Commonwealth government makes it clear that it will not accept any more refugees, threatening to send back any more that come. The federal government is outraged by this news, seeing it as a betrayal. The nerve of them, after the charity they were shown, they have to pay back what they were given. So the government imposes new taxes on the COC to rehouse the displaced refugees. To ensure this is not rejected, the federal government contacts the military leaders in the COC, ordering them to put pressure on the Commonwealth government if they attempt to resist. The military leaders begrudgingly accept. The Commonwealth government has no choice but to accept this and has to deal with an extra 10% of income going to the federal government. Now the matter of the refugees has to be discussed. It seems the federal government will have to do something about these undesirables. On the west coast, further transport is shut down. Any ships already sent out are ordered to return and are emptied. The refugees can sort themselves out. But on the east coast, a great opportunity lies there. The ships on the east coast are given very specific routes to follow. Some of the captains find it strange that they have to sail so close to Cuban waters, but don't think much more of it. Simultaneously, the US fleet on the border of Cuban waters is given orders to deploy their submarines to intercept and destroy hijacked ships taking dangerous cargo to Cuba. The submarines move out and encounter the hijacked ships by the end of the day. The subs contact command for confirmation and are given the go-ahead to engage. The hijacked ships are promptly destroyed. The subs are all ordered to withdraw and leave the survivors to drown. The government soon announces what the Cubans have done. Unbelievable. How could they sink those refugee ships, leaving so many to die? The US is quick to increase its naval presence in the area, to ensure that its maritime activities are protected. Come March, the COC is feeling the full brunt of the food shortage. People are dying in the streets, and the government does nothing to stop crime in the poor areas. Anyone that can't afford to eat isn't worth protecting. Leaving anyone that isn't already dead or dying from starvation to be at the mercy of the gangs that have formed in the vacuum of law and order. Riots break out over scraps of food almost every day. The government is desperately planting as many farms as they can afford, but it will still be months before there's enough food to feed everyone. The home states are doing better than they were two months ago, but every cent richer they are, every extra gram of bread they have is all from dragging the COC down so that they could bring their head back above the water. Yet it hasn't fixed the government's image in the eyes of the people. The only action that has affected that was the destruction of those refugee ships. But that didn't give them any favor. It only meant that most of the hateful glares were directed at Cuba instead. But no matter, the government will use whatever they can. The Atlantic fleet has been inching ever closer to Cuba over the weeks, and Cuba is feeling the heat. They've moved most of their navy to oppose the American navy. Of course, theirs is significantly smaller than the American one, but they need to show that they won't be pushed around. Little do they know, this is what the US government is counting on. The Atlantic fleet continues inching closer, day by day, moving slightly to the left or slightly to the right as they patrol back and forth. In May, the first humans land on Mars. Even with the state the world is in, the event is watched by billions. The astronauts do their surveys, collect their samples, and leave after an elapsed time of 35 hours, beginning their six-month journey back to Earth. In June, the Atlantic fleet continues to move in on Cuban waters and call their bluff of naval retaliation. The Cuban Navy is dumbfounded how the US ships have the balls to just move towards them like that, 
They're hesitant to do anything against them, so they slowly shrink back as the U.S. Navy moves forward, until finally the Cuban leadership orders action to be taken. The Cuban Navy begins firing warning shots, but the second they do, the Americans return fire directly at the Cubans. So the two sides enter open conflict, firing at each other. As much as the Cubans try to hold their ground, they're no match against the superior American ships. The Americans continue hammering the Cuban ships, sinking them one by one. It's not too long before the Cubans decide to retreat, but sailing in the opposite direction is not enough to dissuade the Americans. They keep firing until every last ship is underwater, and after that they keep on moving, closer and closer to Cuba. In response to this, the Cuban government has no other choice but to threaten the US with nuclear missiles, warning them to desist with their transgressions. This, of course, is what the US government was waiting for. This was the last mistake Cuba would make. Cuba threatening the US with nuclear weapons. This can't stand. They have to be stopped. The US government prepares their assets, using the same tactic that got them control of China. Fortunately, the stealth tech that the US adapted from China worked well enough to allow spy planes to find Cuba's nuclear silos without being detected. The government orders the Navy to withdraw back to US waters while they organize their other assets. The government spends another week rallying the population against Cuba, and once they feel there's enough outcry to take down Cuba, they begin their plan. With the fleet in place, the Bradley Hercules is moved into position above Cuba. With all the pieces in place, the government gives the go-ahead to attack. The Navy begins launching cruise missiles at Cuba's nuclear silos. At the same time, the Bradley Hercules fires its payloads down on the Cuban leadership, eliminating them entirely in one strike. With the leadership gone and the rest of the command structure no doubt in shambles, the Navy starts moving in, deploying fighters as they move. As the Cubans launch their fighters too, the planes begin engaging each other and the once peaceful skies light up with machine gun fire. Not long after, infantry and armor begin landing on the beaches, making their way inland to begin securing the country. Only a small number are actually deployed, however. The government intends to keep this war going for as long as they can. And if the US military appears weaker than it is, it may also draw out the government's enemies, thinking they can strike the easy opponent. The military units fighting in Cuba are given orders to only deploy small numbers at a time, and are kept bogged down by continual orders to secure meaningless targets. The government continues holding back the military for the next few weeks, keeping the hatred against the Cubans flowing among their people. But holding the military back can only do so much when they're facing such an inferior opponent. The military may be distracted with pointless busy work and time wasting, but on the odd occasion that US forces encounter Cuban military, the fights are very one-sided. The government did manage to find excuses to limit the firepower of the US forces by saying that minimal damage needs to be inflicted to the population and infrastructure. Regardless, the US forces still managed to eliminate the threat of Cuban military after nearly a month. The government has once again bought themselves more time, but without a threat, the focus will again draw towards them. As the government had expected, however, Russia begins increasing the number of troops along the border, supplying much more equipment to them and setting up defenses. It's clear Russia is afraid the US will try to attack them. These troop movements certainly are something, but the US government will have to wait longer if they want Russia to do anything more extreme. Until that time, the attention of the government is drawn to newly annexed Cuba. The tropical climate and extensive beaches will be perfect for a vacation paradise, and could also serve as a fallback point for the government if things get out of hand. 
The government begins approaching different companies from hotels to water slide parks. They begin striking deals with all of them to begin setting up on the new territory of Cuba. Coming into August, the government already has billions of dollars sunk into turning Cuba into a resort. The locals are given little thought beyond their immediate use. Some are employed in helping construct the massive new structures, but other than that, the locals are almost completely ignored by everyone. The territory of Cuba isn't even given its own Commonwealth government. It's put under the jurisdiction of the Southern Commonwealth. With the efforts of so many organizations and the government, the territory of Cuba becomes nothing more than a place for rich American tourists to relax on the beach, away from the hustle and bustle of the cities. On the other side of the world, however, the leaders of the most powerful remaining nations meet in secret. They discuss the current situation, the unending holy war carried out by America. Three countries have already been consumed by the eternal hunger of the American Empire. China only have themselves to blame, but it's Canada and Cuba that are worrying. The US seems to come up with a surprisingly large amount of justification to invade a nation when they need it. It's clearly a case of the US inventing reasons to act as they please. They cannot continue to take any more territory, lest they become too powerful for anyone to stop. So the leaders of these nations agree to form an alliance for the purpose of defending themselves if America moves one step more. So the Transcontinental Defense Alliance is created, including nations from all over the globe. Russia, Germany, the UK. Once word of this gets out, it infuriates the US government. Cowards! They created a coalition to stand in defiance of us. This alliance does bring at least some advance to the government's pursuit of absolute power. They wanted an enemy, they got one. The drawback being that they can no longer directly fight Russia and draw out the pure righteous hatred against communism that has been instilled in every God-fearing American. No, the Alliance is a different kind of enemy. Confrontation may never be possible, but that could turn out to be better. First things first, the government needs the Alliance to show their true colors. What better way to do that than to request to join them? After all, their stated goal is to ensure global security. The US has brought peace to so many nations. The government extends their request to join the alliance, and as they predicted, it is denied. There can be no doubt now that this alliance exists solely to oppose the US. Their jealousy of true power knows no bounds. The government makes certain the public is aware of the impending danger of these foreign nations, and thus, the new enemy for the public to hate has been revealed. Plenty of people are still swayed by this fear-mongering, but there's only so many times you can light a fire in the hearts of the people before it burns you back. The public is already so jaded from the years of war and thought policing, only the malleable will bend to the government anymore, of whom are becoming less and less common by the day. Those opposed to the government are resolute in their belief, and only grow more so with each manipulative tactic employed to win them over. Every single news report, every billboard, every poster telling people how they should think, who they should hate, who they should obey, drives another one to the secessionist militias. Yet, this still serves to benefit the government. As the country has been loosely united against a common foe, the government has gained a stronger hold over the country once again. To the government, the secessionist movements proved advantageous twofold. The militias have all sprouted out of, planted themselves in rural communities. These communities have become incredibly self-sufficient. Federal resources were being withdrawn from these areas and reallocated even before the government was aware of the threat of these militias. 
The militias have also proven to be excellent bait to draw out enemies of the state, allowing them to be taken out in one strike, which is exactly what the government plans to do with this thorn at its side. Too bad it can't see the other enemy rising up against it either. In the territory of former Mongolia, the lightly armed, far-spread US forces patrol the border to Russia. The whole damn place has been a dust bowl since Baikal and the other lakes dried up in the 2050s. The only place that people still lived after that, the cities of former Mongolia, lie ruined and devastated after the US bombed them during the Gobi campaign. The only people who still survive do so out in the barren landscapes far away from any other civilized life. Little to the knowledge of the US, their enemies are moving against them. Patrols in the western regions start coming under fire from the mountains. The enemies are using hit-and-run tactics, striking when their opponent isn't on their guard, then quickly slinking away after the damage is done. The army begins sending more armored units with the patrols, but they soon discover the enemy is now using mines against them. Some of the mines are disabled and examined. Russian models, not decades-old surplus, modern ordnance. The army starts sending more troops to the region, but they're of little use other than targets for the enemy. The modestly armed rank-and-file soldiers can do little against an enemy that strikes out of nowhere from kilometers away. Increasing the size of patrols only increases the casualties with each mine detonation. Even the spearhead of America's military power, power armor, is at the mercy of the desert. The amount of sand blowing into every crack and crevice makes even the most robust armament require extensive cleaning and maintenance. After two weeks of getting flailed by a hidden enemy with no successful counterattack, command orders an airbase to be constructed to support the patrols. An airfield is hastily constructed in the region and ground assault planes are delivered to the base. As more patrols are attacked over the next few days, they call out where to strike for the air support. This provides moderate success at the beginning. As soon as the enemies are located, their position is airstriked. This provides the US forces the opportunity to finally look at their enemies up close. When the bodies are examined, there can be no doubt. Chinese. Kitted out with Russian gear. Most likely PLA. Whether through sheer dumb luck or actual intuition, the rumors were true. To make things worse, the federal government discovers what the US military is doing in the Gobi Desert and completely forbids the use of any air support or any mass increase in activity near the Russian border. It almost seems as if the government is scared. So all the military can do is coordinate hits on their enemies with ground assets. Yet they have little to no success with eliminating the insurgents with their infantry. The armored and infantry units on the border just aren't built for this kind of warfare. The Commonwealth requests desert specialized units, but the federal government steps in and denies the request, wanting as many personnel as possible in preparation for what comes next. The troops on the border are on their own, so they decide to just give up chasing these insurgents through the desert and switch to a defensive strategy. No leaving the bases unless necessary. Anyone seen within range of the base on the US side is to be taken down. This works for a very short while. While the insurgents no longer have targets to attack out in the open, some even are taken down by American snipers as they get too close to the bases while trying to see what the Americans are doing. Even this fails as the federal government once again learns what the military is doing and demands they be watching the border for Russian movements. The military tries to extend out again but quickly finds that in the absence of patrols, more insurgents have infested the area. The increased enemy density allows for more confirmed kills, but also leaves more Americans dead. 
the military forces decide to pull out and retreat back to the old Chinese border, where they can organize proper counter-offensives against the insurgents. The officers responsible for this order are court-martialed at the behest of the federal government, and the military is ordered to find every last insurgent using any means necessary. Wipe them out. The only exception is that they cannot engage enemies within five miles of the Russian border. Most of the military forces in the Syrsi are diverted to the Gobi Desert. Given the government's refusal to give them any resources to hunt down these insurgents, the military has to make do with what's available. There's still a few marine units left in the COC. Veterans of the Gobi campaign are still using their desert gear. They're the best weapon the military has. More desert gear is put into production, but will still take weeks if not months to outfit the troops with. So the US forces begin their hunt. But as they quickly discover, every usable road is paved with landmines, and every mountain is a sniper's nest. It soon becomes clear that they've walked into a trap. The troops on the ground can do nothing but wait to be attacked as they aimlessly search every corner for insurgents. The insurgents always reveal themselves eventually, and they always die, eventually. The cost comes in the number of soldiers and marines that die in the time that it takes for the planes to strafe the insurgents, or ground forces to surround them. As each day goes by, ten men die, one insurgent dies, and another sneaks their way into the same area the day after. Reconnaissance flights show that the insurgents are likely getting supported by the locals. It's little to go on, but better than nothing. <coughs> the military forces move out further to investigate the locals for insurgent activity. While the patrols ease up close to the old Chinese border, some of the insurgents begin moving forward. A couple even make it past the old border. They soon find their way to one of the nuclear plants out in the desert. The insurgents raid the plant, taking the staff hostage. As the military learns about the situation, they pull back some of the troops to assault the power plant. A perimeter is created outside of the lethal meltdown range, and two platoons of soldiers and marines are deployed to infiltrate and secure the plant. Unfortunately, the marines botched the operation, and insurgents managed to destabilize the reactor before they're executed. There's no populated areas near the plant in danger, but the platoons and the staff die in the meltdown, leaving the U.S. forces with less veterans and less morale. The U.S. forces begin executing all the locals they find, but whether this will impact the insurgents remains to be seen. Meanwhile, the heat is turning up in the home states. Militias have only continued to grow, turning into self-sustaining enclaves within the states. Many have become sympathetic to the plight these communities face seeing them as an echo of the ideals the nation was founded on. This sympathy soon runs all the way up to the state level. With the support of the people, the more outspoken states see the opportunity to publicly show their criticism of how the federal government has usurped power. The states bring up the topic of more independence, but it's completely ignored by the federal government. Better to solve the root of this problem than appeasing the hungry wolves. The government has been moving their troops, rearranging assets, preparing their media sources, all to take down these militia rebellions. And now the time has come. An army unit is deployed to one of the smaller communities. The soldiers are told they are to search the area for illegal substances and weapons. Once the soldiers arrive, they are greeted by militiamen. They're fully aware that the government does not like them and will try to find reason to exterminate them, but they won't give the government reason to. The militiamen stay calm and are polite to the soldiers. Some of them even serve together. The militiamen allow the soldiers to search the entire community for anything illegal. 
As the soldiers begin their search, they come into fire from an unseen position. All of the soldiers and militiamen take cover. After a brief moment of tension between them all where their guns are raised, they calm down and put the guns away. Without the soldiers and militiamen fighting, the men who open fire on them are quickly caught. Before they can be questioned, they bite down on cyanide pills and die in seconds. All that's known is that they weren't part of the militia, so they must have been trying to incite a fight between the army and the militia. Nobody knows who they are, but most have a pretty good idea. Suspecting what the government is doing, it's not long before many people call the media. The news spreads like wildfire, even as the government tries to contain it. The army deployed on US soil, targeting militias, even the men who committed suicide are identified as DIA agents. The government is quickly running out of friends. Even the more pro-government states are quieting down about their love for the feds. Action has to be taken to prevent the militias from getting more cozy with the state governments. A plan is put in motion, a plan that there's no coming back from. To ensure it cannot be traced back to them, an outside party is paid to carry out the operation, after which they will be executed. On the morning of November 4th, four men sneak into the Texas Capitol building. Ten minutes later, they walk out, and as the Texas Senate is meeting, the building explodes, killing everyone inside. The governor, however, who was at his office at the time, was not killed by the explosion. No one could be certain of who was responsible for this attack, but many had their suspicions despite the government's claims that it was carried out by militia extremists. The confirmation for many came when the government enacted emergency powers in the wake of the attack and immediately declared all armed militias as terrorist organizations. And that was it. With that action, the country had reached breaking point. The cracks began to spread all over the country like lightning. It began with soldiers being critical of moving against their own countrymen. As soon as they realized this sentiment was shared by many others, it turned into direct defiance of command. Then finally, open conflict. Fort Hood was the first to fall. The majority of enlisted refused to carry out their orders. The officers swung the other way, but the opposition was by no means small. The loyalists were ordered to detain and, if necessary, eliminate the traitors. When they resisted, it turned bloody. As the loyalists were the ones to start the conflict, many undecided were driven towards the opposing side. Within hours, Fort Hood was under the control of the rebels. The fall of one of the largest army bases sent an echo felt throughout the entire country. Military bases across the country began turning against the government. The National Guard lent more in favor of rebellion while the federal forces swung more towards the government. In actuality, however, it wasn't such an easy split. <coughs> some army bases are taken over by rebels, some National Guard bases are taken over by loyalists. Some states are taken by rebels, some the rebels are defeated by loyalist forces. After the first few days, Texas and the surrounding states managed to wrestle complete control from loyalist forces, subsequently allowing military units and some militia groups to provide poorly coordinated support to nearby states. This proves just enough in key areas to tip the scale for many states. The loyalist forces are unable to respond so rapidly as the population has largely turned against them. By the end of the week, the lines are drawn. The loyalist forces have withdrawn from the American South and much of the Midwest. Now they hold both coasts, while the rebels control the heartland of the country. The states that chose to rebel had to act fast to avoid being swept away in a counterattack from the government. The states quickly align themselves more formally and collaborate to reorganize their militaries. Still, the Union of States was more of a collection of different military forces than one coherent power. 
Yet that did not matter all too much, as the Union controlled the areas of the US with the largest crop production. The Union could effectively wait it out until the Loyalist forces were desperate enough to attack them where they could wear down the Loyalists with their defense until they were weak enough to attack. Much of the militia and military didn't like this idea, however. There was considerable outrage at the idea of waiting for the government to attack. But without certainty that there would be a unified move against the Loyalists, they had to wait on the governors to plan the next move. Meanwhile, the government begins requisitioning food and other supplies from Canada and China, making life that much harder for the locals. But still, they'll have to make a move soon to avoid a famine. The government prepares their forces to take back control of the Great Plains. Once the forces are ready, the attack begins. From both sides of the country, the force of the US government comes raining down on the rebels. Planes flood the sky to bomb the enemies. Troops cover the landscapes, moving to their targets. But as the invading forces soon find out, the rebels are much better prepared than initially thought. Anti-aircraft defenses have been set up at points of interest ready to be deployed against enemy aircraft. Much of the first wave of bombers is taken by surprise and destroyed. So the ground forces move in. To counter this, the rebels have built up defenses around their anti-aircraft emplacements. As the government troops move in, they have incredible difficulty breaking through the rebel defences. While the government troops have more armoured units, the defences make anything but power armour difficult to use. On top of this, the rebels have incorporated large numbers of militia and other volunteers, almost all of which are veterans of the previous war. These soldiers, hardened by years of battle, greatly outclass the loyalists that are largely made up of conscripts. The rebels are too dug in and too skilled to take out. Even with the inferior numbers, the rebels decimate the government forces, pushing them back to their own territory. The government did not expect nearly this much resistance from the rebels. Now it seems they'll have to take more drastic action if they hope to win. The government starts ordering all available military assets to reinforce the borders of Loyalist territory. The troops in Canada begin moving back down to the home stage, and much of the Pacific fleet begins making the trip round to the east coast. In the COC, all US forces are to withdraw, take what they can, and ditch the rest. <coughs> the COC military forces are then sent to the front in the Gobi, while the US military withdraws from the area. As the military quickly discovers, none of the citizens are being evacuated. They're told that local forces will sooner than the first wave of ships arrive to take the troops back, because it's come out that the leaders of the COC military are now collaborating with the insurgents. The military units that are supposed to be fighting the insurgents have been left to die out in the desert. By the time the first ships have left, the insurgents have managed to completely capture the city of Urumqi on the outskirts of the Gobi Desert. All this fighting, all this death, what was it for? All the years spent spilling blood to take land from those motherfuckers and they're taking it back by the day. No, they won't. Of the remaining US forces in the Commonwealth, almost all of them turn away from the evacuation boats. If this war's going to end, it's going to end in fire. The troops mobilize towards Urumqi, preparing to fight one last time. They all know many of them won't survive, but as they say to themselves, this is still the USA, and this will defend. By the time the US forces arrive, they can see the insurgents are committing genocide against the locals. The soldiers move into the streets, mowing down the insurgents that come into sight. They thought the soldiers had run away like cowards. They were wrong and now they're paying the price for their misplaced faith. US soldiers search building by building, putting down any insurgents they find. The US forces take heavy losses from this, and more than a few civilians are killed in the crossfire. But all that matters is for every dead soldier, there's 10 more insurgents face down in the street. 
The operation takes a week before the U.S. forces declare victory, in which they shoot, burn, and hang over 500 insurgents. After the victory at Urumqi, the military dusts off the last few nuclear silos in the COC and launches them, painting the desert sands with warheads. The government was too afraid to take such action because of Russia and the other failed states of Europe, but those cowards won't do anything. Now the insurgents will have nowhere left to hide. They'll run back to their commie friends in the Kremlin, or they'll die from the irradiated sands of the desert. Now the insurgents have been dealt with, those who sided with them will pay the price, and this commonwealth will finally know peace. With the refusal of almost the entire military force overseas to return home, the federal government will have to make do with far less reinforcements. With all the available forces ready, the second invasion of the plains begins. The defenders expect to see more poorly trained grunts coming to die for their corrupt government, Instead, they are faced by massive green hulking monsters on land and the third fleet attacking their coasts. As the monsters press forward against the rebels, they're targeted like the tanks they are, but shrug off the bullets with little care and decimate the defenders. These monsters clear the way for the regular infantry units to move forward and destroy the anti-aircraft defenses, allowing the loyalist forces to swiftly gain air superiority. This allows them to pave over the first line of defenses, in response, the rebels begin mobilizing their heavy armor, and the militiamen prepare the soldiers to engage in guerrilla warfare against the enemy. The rebel armor finds small success in taking out the monsters that the loyalists deployed, but this still isn't enough. All available armored units are focused on killing the enemy super soldiers, while the enemy armor is left to the infantry to be taken out with mines and rockets. The rebels suffer heavy casualties in the next few weeks, but just barely manage to hold off the enemy from enough of their anti-air defenses to prevent enemy air superiority. The tanks continue to will down the enemy super soldiers, but the loyalist chain breaks from the rebels' guerrilla attacks, leaving loyalist armor and infantry so weakened that the super soldiers are cut off from their support, allowing the entirety of the rebel forces to focus on eliminating them. Even still, it's a massacre in the best case. The enemy super soldiers take out so much of the rebel defenses that if any other loyalist forces came in after them, the rebels would have easily lost all their anti-air defenses. Many of the rebels' planes and ships were almost lost fighting the superior loyalist fleets around the coast. If the government manages to deploy any more of the super soldiers, the war may already be lost for the rebels. But luckily for the rebel states, once word gets out of what the government had created, these things that were once men there's massive uproar. Many truly believe now that the government has strayed too far from God's light, creating these perversions of nature. It's not just an affront to God, it's an affront to everything. With enlistment rising for the rebels and social unrest increasing in the loyalist states, now is the perfect time to strike. Something has to be done before the government deploys more of their super soldiers. DC needs to be taken, and taken fast. The Union military doesn't even wait for the state governments to approve their movements. The majority of the Union forces move up into South Carolina where the bombers are launched into Loyalist territory, taking the enemy by surprise and crippling much of the military power along the route to DC, upon which the rebel ground and naval forces begin their advance, making it about halfway to DC before encountering resistance. Yet still the determined rebel forces push through the scrambling defenses, the trouble comes when the Loyalist forces finally mobilize their air forces. The Rebel air forces manage to take down a small number of enemy planes, but their small numbers mean they're quickly wiped out by the enemy. 
The Loyalist planes then proceed to decimate the Rebel ground forces, repeatedly bombing them from the sky. The Rebels quickly retreat into a nearby forest to avoid further air attack and regroup. The Rebel ground forces continue on through the forest until reaching the city of Norfolk, where the ground forces coordinate to raid the bombed-out naval shipyard and take out the remaining Loyalist naval forces. The Rebel Navy forces still lose multiple ships in the battle, but the ground forces manage to successfully capture some docked ships as well. The port will serve the Rebels well as a launch point for the attack on DC. Over in the west, the Loyalists attempt a desperate attack on Union territory, but the hastily scrapped together attack forces still fail to penetrate the light but dug-in defences. After the Rebels at Norfolk receive some light reinforcements, they set out for Washington, D.C. The Rebels soon find the city better prepared than initially expected. Coming up on the city, the Rebel forces begin slowing down as the Loyalist defences increase. Rebel ships begin making their way up the Potomac and are met with the Loyalist fleet. The two fleets clash in the narrow waters, mobilising their planes against each other. At first, the Loyalists hold the advantage. The support from Adams Air Force Base allows them to maintain air superiority. In a desperate attempt to neutralise the threat from the air, the Rebels change around their strategy. The Rebel ships draw back to focus on taking out the enemy in the sky, while the ground forces push through what they can to get a view of the enemy fleet and start engaging them from land. This strategy turns out successful. The enemy fleet is destroyed and the air force is in retreat. However, significant losses were still suffered by rebel forces. Even with a small number of friendly ships able to provide some air defense and artillery fire, the rebels may well lose the battle for DC. The saving grace for the rebels, and perhaps all of the US, is the citizens. The loyalist forces didn't waste resources on evacuating anyone. They hoped anyone who would stay would also fight for their home. They were wrong. Now that the opposing side was knocking on their doorstep, many of the citizens left in the city had decided now was the time to stick it to the government. Most weren't acting out of support for the rebels, but merely hatred of the government. There was plenty of petty looting and destruction of property. Only very rarely did someone actively take up arms against the government forces in the city. Still, it eventually causes enough of a disturbance to distract the government forces for the rebels to begin gaining slight advantages. In response, the government forces begin treating anyone caught outside as hostile and execute them. While the majority of it was small crime before, this action pushes enough people over the edge to start making a difference. Now the government forces have to deal with the hostile citizens attacking them on top of the rebel forces attacking the city. The poorly trained citizens are often taken out with minimal casualties by the military, but it starts wearing them down. Seeing almost everyone turn against them, finding no sanctuary even in the heart of their nation. Former allies besieging the city, their countrymen waiting in every building, looking through every window, waiting to take them out. The government soldiers can often do little but wait to die from an unseen enemy miles away. Some begin losing their minds, seeing the citizens they were sworn to protect slowly turn against them. The resulting breakdowns result in the mass shootings of anyone not in uniform which does nothing but push more people away from the Loyalist cause. The rock that once was Washington, D.C.'s military has now been worn down from all sides into nothing more than a pebble. The war-forged veterans spearheading the assault on D.C. make one last push into the city. They themselves, battered and bruised from the conflict, find minimal resistance from the remaining defenders. The last few hours of the battle are quiet and come to an end quickly. Some fight tooth and nail to the bitter end, choosing to die for their America, but many more, aware the end has come, surrender.
With that, the rebels take Washington, D.C. After the victory in D.C., rebel forces searched for traces of the government, finding the last record of the federal government acting in the city to be months old. The loss of their capital city was one thing, but the absence of their government broke the back of the loyalist forces. The chain of command fell apart in hours after the news that the government had cut and run. Anyone wearing a uniform that hadn't already joined the rebels or deserted was nothing more than a local warlord now. The government thought they could keep the country bound together by the flag, but a flag means nothing unless there was someone willing to die for it, and the government had run out of people willing to die for them. The rebels allocated a significant amount of resources to hunting down the old government and making them pay for their crimes. In their holy crusade for vengeance, the rebels found evidence of a secret group known only as the Enclave. This group had ties to everyone at the top. Everyone. There were expansive networks of comlinks to various installations that linked to this group. For the next few months, the military raided every laboratory, every office, every bunker with ties to the Enclave, finding the politicians and officers that had hid during the war, Taking as many as possible alive, they were sent back to D.C. where they would face justice, as they were hung from the Capitol building. In the vie for power that resulted after the toppling of the old government, the states claimed their own independence. The United States was such in name only. A weak federal government remained, but the states all more or less became separate nations, with China being the most powerful of them. The only thing holding them together was the moderately aligned interests and agreement to give the federal government control of the military in wartime, which would be sooner than they thought. Little did they know, near the end, the old government had been selling nuclear technology to other nations to fund the war. Nations that saw the new governments as a dangerous spawn of the old one. These nations were rapidly developing their nuclear technology in preparation for conflict with the US. There was a new Cold War one that the U.S. didn't even see coming. It would be the crucible that they'd be proven in. Whether they would be any better than the old government remained to be seen. One thing is certain, however. This time, the governments believed their own lies.